tonight, we are going to be giving a, a historical background, and I'm going to take my time through this. We'll be giving a, a historical background to the teachings and lineage of the holiness, Pentecostal, word of faith, charismatic movement. Now, I, I did not prepare a, an outline. Um, if you need this, though, I will give you my entire message just so that you can read it all. You can pass it on to someone um, if that's what you need, if you want it in, in, a, in a hand copied form. If it's easier for you to listen and you're that kind of person, then, then go ahead and do that. But we are going to, to move next week into the most identifiable uh, mark of this movement, which is speaking in tongues. That'll be next week. The following week, we will discuss the, the idea of receiving new revelation from God. And then on the fourth week, we will talk about the subject of healing. <clears throat> on the fifth week, this is going to be debatable, but we are going to maybe do talking about or maybe talk about experience being the test of truth. Meaning, does your experience define what is true? We may do that or we may just conclude it all with a, a Q&A. We'll see how it goes. But uh, that's kind of where we're headed for the next at least month. Um, you may be wondering, why are we doing this series? Why this subject? What do we hope to accomplish from teaching this series? The reason why we're endeavoring to teach this series is because this movement cannot be ignored. Many of you, including myself, we either grew up in this movement or know someone who was close to us that is going to a church that teaches many of the things that we're going to be discussing throughout the next few weeks. Why do I say again that this subject cannot be ignored? Because this movement, it claims to be the movement that possesses and operates in all of the spiritual gifts that we find described in the New Testament, more specifically in the book of Acts. This movement claims to be equipped with the signs and wonders that we read about in the New Testament. They also claim to have the, the authority of the kingdom. That gives them power over sickness, power over poverty, and power over in any other undesirable negative experiences that come with being a human being and living on earth. They don't get to experience any of that stuff. They have power over those things. They also claim to have the ability to take so-called believers, and I say so-called, to a higher experience of holiness and sanctification. Now, if these claims are true, then we should all want to be a part and leave this church to be a part of that movement. If these claims are true. And if they're not, then this movement is heretical and it must be avoided at all costs. According to World, Encycl World Christian Encyclopedia, the Pentecostal charismatic movement is the largest movement or largest church body in the entire world. It is estimated that there are over half a billion Pentecostal slash charismatics today. Half a billion. Ten of the largest churches or the ten largest churches in the world are Pentecostal charismatic churches. 
the ten largest churches in the world are Pentecostal charismatic. <clears throat> Singapore, Australia, Fiji, America, Africa, and Korea. All of them have the largest churches in the world, and all of those churches are charismatic Pentecostal churches. Matter of fact, in Seoul, Korea, there's a church there that claims to have the most members in all the world, a church of over 800,000 members. This movement has also infiltrated your television networks. TBN, the World, the Word, the Word Channel, Star, the Church Channel. They are all committed to Pentecostal charismatic teachings and word of faith theology and spread that heresy all across the globe. This movement has also infiltrated contemporary music and the music that you hear, you and I hear on the radio. It, you can't hear a song on Christian radio today that is not riddled with heretical theology. So why are we doing this series? Because, obviously, this movement cannot be ignored. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And we feel that it is our responsibility to expose the heretical errors of that movement so that you will know how to minister to those who are in that movement. And then for you to stay away from it at all costs. Meaning, if you leave this church, don't go to a Pentecostal charismatic church. Don't go to the rock. Don't go to Valley Bible and probably 10,000 other churches in Bakersfield. You would be taking 20 steps backward instead of 20 steps forward. Let me say that if you are listening tonight, I hope that you are listening for two specific reasons. For yourself to grow and to understand what this movement is about and to stay away from it. And secondly, to minister to those who are in this movement and help them to see truth so that they will run from this movement at all cost. <clears throat> I am just as excited as teaching this information, hopefully as you are, of gaining this information. But it means nothing if we don't pass it on. So please, I encourage you, pass it on. Rescue people from this heresy. Rescue them from this, this damning heresy. Give them the truth. Don't ignore it. Don't say, well, maybe it'll be someone else. It's you. You're in their life for a reason. As we talked about last night concerning Esther, who knows? Maybe you're in their lives for just a time as this or such a time as this. So in my preparation for this series, I got to tell you, it was very, very challenging. The question that I had as I began this series is, geez, where do I start? Because as I look through this movement, there are so many little rabbit trails of heresy that if I tried to follow each and every one of them, you probably would end up throwing up by the end of the night because it would make you sick. So what I want to do tonight is I want to begin where we should all begin. And then I want to show you how when you go outside of Sola Scriptura, you find yourself Drifting into heretical theology that is nowhere near what the Bible teaches. So let's go to Acts chapter two and verse number one. Gosh, am I going to read all those verses? Okay. 
Acts chapter two, verse number one. I guess I am. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly they came, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, this being the apostles. And they divided, and tongues divided as fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. As they were, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, or Elamites, and residents from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues or languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, mocking, saying they're filled with wine. After this, Peter stands up and he clarifies to the crowd what's going on. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who are dwelling in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. Prophesy meaning declare the mighty works of God just as they were doing in tongues. Verse 19. And all shall and all and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved at this point. Peter begins to present to the crowd the gospel. Verse 37, their response was, now they heard this and they were cut to the heart. And Peter and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. And with many words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about three thousand souls. This is known as the day of Pentecost. This is the time in which was prophesied in the past by Joel that came to pass. As Peter and the apostles were experiencing the Holy Spirit come upon them. B.B. Warfield explains this as 
a trickle of the Old Testament of water that now exploded in the New Testament to where the gospel and the spirit of God was now available to every single people of every tribe, nation and tongue. This was an exciting moment. There were signs. There were wonders. There were tongues or languages that God was using by his chosen apostles to declare the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he used these signs as validation that these things were from God. He used the tongues. He used the miracles. He used the wonders. All of these things that to show that these apostles were from God. Ephesians chapter two, verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen now. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is built, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. The church is built on all of the prophecies of the prophets of Old Testament. And also the church is built on the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament. And what holds these together is that they have the same message, which is what? Trust in Christ. The Old Testament did not know it as clearly as the New Testament, but their message was the same. Trust. In Christ for your salvation. In the Old Testament, they were looking forward to Christ that would conquer sin, that would conquer death, that would conquer the grave. In the New Testament, they saw him. They touched him. They experienced him. And once he was ascended, they looked back and they preached of him. This is what the church is built upon. This is the, the theology, the foundation that we, the church, are built upon. How do we know this? Because the, the prophets backed up their revelation with signs and wonders by prophesying things that were going to come, and they did. How do we know this about the apostles? They proved it with their signs and their wonders, tongues being one of them, healings being one of them, the gospel going forward, the gospel of grace being one of them. Now listen. If Christ... Has come, And the message of, the, of Christ has been solidified by the prophets who foresaw and the apostles who were eyewitnesses. And these are the foundations of what is now called the church. Why would anybody need to rebuild the foundation? Listen close. Why would there be any need to recreate what's a, what has already been foundationally laid? Unless one believes that the foundation that was laid is not good enough. What am I getting at? What do I mean? There's no need to build a new foundation unless you think the first foundation isn't sufficient enough. The foundation that was laid was firmly established. And we, the church, are built upon that foundation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. With the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul says and speaks about the true signs of his apostleship and the apostleship of the apostles who were performing also these signs and wonders and who were preaching this gospel. 
That was the gift that the apostles had when they were alive during that apostolic age. Write that down. Apostolic age. Here's the question. When they died, what happened to those gifts? What happened to the gifts of the apostolic age? The signs and wonders and miracles and speaking revelation from God. What happened to those signs? Well, one of the things that you should know is that those signs were the foundation. And what do we do? Do we continue to lay another foundation upon the foundation or do we build upon the foundation? We build upon the foundation. Church history, it gives us some insight into what happened to those gifts. John Chrysostom, a church leader in Antioch, where some of the first churches were established between 347 and 407 A.D. He says in regard to the spiritual gifts, listen closely, the whole place, meaning the whole subject, is very obscure. But the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to, and listen, and by their cessation. Write that down. Cessation. Being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. This man, John Chrysostom, living in the fourth century, in an area where some of the first churches were established by Paul. He was where Paul was seeing the signs and wonders and mighty works in that same area. This man, John, is saying none of us have seen any of that. And we are in the churches that Paul established. Matter of fact, we don't even know very much about those things since none of us have ever seen those things because those things have ceased. Here's a man a mere 300 years after the establishment of the churches that Paul established saying we don't even see those anymore. Those gifts have ceased with what? With the apostles. He has no idea what they are because he's never seen them. John Chrysostom was what is known as a cessationist. When he says of their cessation, he is a cessationist. A cessationist is one who believes that the gifts of the apostles ceased along with the apostles. That there was an apostolic age in which those gifts were active because they were necessary to establish the teachings of the apostles. Once that foundation was built, there was no, no, no longer a need for the signs and wonders because the foundation was already built. So why build another foundation? Now, a continuationist is a person who does not believe that those gifts have ended, but that they still continue today. John Chrysostom, he and apparently, listen, every other church father and leader at that time was also a cessationist because there are no records of any church fathers recording any gifts, performing any gifts. Performing any signs or wonders that we see in the book of Acts. Listen, guys, I have gone back and I'm a history buff. There's nothing. There's no mention of it. They don't even practice it. 
There's not. Here's where you find mentions of signs, wonders and all these so-called miracles. You find them in cults. You do not find them in early church history. You find them in animistic societies. You find them in jungles where they're worshiping trees. You find them in jungles where they're worshiping uh, cows. You do not find the sign gifts. Listen to me. If you're if you have someone who's related to you, who's involved in this movement, tell them, know your history. History is a great teacher. We only find these evidences in occult religions. We do not find them in historical Christianity. So then where do they come from? The occult. As a matter of fact, the only times that we do see any mentions of these gifts among so-called Christians is among people who are declared as heretics or declared to be heretics. Uh, there's a man by the name of Montanus. He's an example. He lived in Asia Minor in the same area where the first apostolic churches were established. And during the second century, not long after the death of the apostles, listen, he claimed to have new revelation from God. Two of his associates Women, one named Priscilla and the other one named Maximilla, claim to be able to speak new revelation from God. Listen, and each time they believed that they were hearing from God, they would fall into a trance and they would lose consciousness. And they said it was because they were under the power of God. This is not how God spoke through people. This is how the devil speaks through people. In the 14th century... All the way, we we skip from 2nd century all the way to the 14th century. Why? Because there's nothing there. And anything that is there is not in historic Christianity. It's only in cults. Please keep that in your memory bank. We jump to the 14th century. There was a woman by the name of Catherine of Siena. She's known as St. Catherine. She believed that she could speak in tongues. And had the same gift of the apostles. She also believed that she could levitate herself. And that whenever she was hungry, she would call angels to come and cook her breakfast. That's the lineage of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. That's their history. These are the examples that we hear about when it comes to the so-called gifts between the apostolic age all the way up to, listen now, the 17th century. Or even the 16th century, where you have the, the gosh, I just said it, the, the what, what was that thing that I said, Zay, the Zikau prophets. The Zikau prophets, who I won't even need to mention, but they believe that they were receiving new revelation from God in 1522, just after the, Re- the Reformation. Remember that radical Reformation I was telling you about, that, Re- that Martin Luther came back to stop? That was those guys. Followed by the Anabaptists, and I don't need to go there. But we don't see any mention of all of these gifts and all of these things. So where did it all begin? Here's where we're going to start. Tony, can you put that to like 71? I'm like burning up up here. I'm sorry. I believe it all began with this. A wrong view of God and a wrong view of man. Meaning having an unbiblical view of God. And having an unbiblical view of yourself. 
This all began with a wrong understanding of God's holiness, a wrong understanding of God's sovereignty and a wrong understanding of what truly glorifies God. Why do I say this? After the Reformation, there was a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. He was trained in the doctrines of grace. He even became a teacher of the doctrines of grace. And then after a period of time, Arminius began to have conflicting views about some of the articles found within the writings of John Calvin and some of the other reformers. He argued against predestination. He argued against, which is clearly taught in scripture, he argued against the bondage of human will to sin. Jacob Arminius argued against election, claiming that election was based on conditions that could be controlled by man rather than the biblical view of unconditional election where God chooses a man based upon nothing that he does, but based upon his own goodwill and pleasure. He had a wrong view of God and he had a wrong view of himself. He missed the lecture when John Calvin spoke about all heresies begin with a wrong view of God and a wrong view of man. Arminius developed his views, but they were never fully realized until after his death. When his followers, who were called the Remonstrants, later they would be called Arminians, argued against five specific points found within the reform standards. These five points began to be called the five points of Calvinism. We know them today as TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the, of the saints. The Remonstrants, they, they argued against each of these biblical doctrines at a council called by the Protestant churches of that day in the 17th century. And they were called, it was called a synod or a synod. And it was a council called the Synod of Dort. It, they gathered between 1618 and 1619. They gathered for an entire year. And they began to listen to the side of the remonstrants. After this was all done, the Arminians or the remonstrants were condemned as heretics. For not believing the five points that were traditionally taught in the scripture. The Synod of Dort also pronounced anathemas or curses on anyone who taught such doctrines as the Arminians. Today, we have half a billion Arminians. Today, the Pentecostal charismatic movement is predominantly Arminian. Where did they go wrong? Number one, a wrong view of God and a wrong view of themselves. This theology did not go away, obviously. Because man is sinful, he refuses to believe that he is so corrupted in his mind, will, and desires that he actually believes that there is some kind of quality within himself to perform spiritual good and thus please God. Why? Because he's corrupted in his heart and his mind. As this Arminian theology lived, it found its way to one of the most popular post-Reformation evangelists of all time. You may know him. His name is John Wesley. Write his name down. Don't look at me. Write his name down. John Wesley. John Wesley, born in England in 1703 and was a part of the Anglican Church of England. John Wesley became a member of the Moravian Christians. Who are they? They were followers of John Huss. You remember him? Well, he left that society because there was something that just didn't sit right with him. And it was something he didn't agree with. 
It was called Calvinism. He strongly held onto and embraced the Arminian doctrines or theology with his entire heart. And this theology began to dominate the Church of England at that time. Wesley spoke out against Calvinism or the doctrines of grace and particularly the, particularly the teaching of predestination. He taught that prevenient, he taught prevenient grace and that Christians could achieve a state where the love of God reigned supreme in their hearts. Listen, it became known as here's where we begin. Here's where we go. Christian perfectionism or holiness. John Wesley, holiness. Much of the holiness movement came out of a teaching that John that John Wesley wrote called a plain account of Christian perfectionism. What does that mean? Hit your neighbor and say, please don't fall asleep right now. Hit him. Hit him, please. John Wesley taught this, that when you are saved, that's the first work of grace. Stop. Let that sink in. When you're saved, that's level one. Then, and that's the level one they said you asked Jesus to come into your heart. Then, there's a second phrase. There's a second phase. It's called the second blessing. Or the second work of grace. In this second blessing, it's a personal experience in which after you are regenerated, you get this thing called entire sanctification. Which means this. You are now able to live the rest of your life and never sin again. Who would want that? I would. I think the intention was good. They, they wanted to live a holy life. But they were seeking something extra. They were seeking something more than just regeneration and having a misunderstanding of what comes with regeneration. So they said, okay, I'm saved. I, or I, I declare Jesus as my savior. Now I need him to change my life and I'm looking for something extra to come so that I can live a perfect, sinless life. Although the believer. Oh, uh, the second worst work of grace. OK, so although the believer, they say, is capable of committing sin, it is possible that they could never sin again. That's what John Wesley taught. This is the holiness movement. This is outside of Christian orthodoxy. This is outside of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that sanctification is a process. That sanctification is progressive. The Bible teaches that sanctification is continuous, but there is going to be a war between the, the flesh and the spirit. And they taught you can have victory over that war and never sin again. The London Baptist Confession, our confession of faith, says those who, who are united to Christ, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are also further sanctified by the spirit and his word dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body is the dominion. Is that yours? The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and several several lusts thereby are more weakened and mortified. And they are more and more quickened in the saving grace to practice uh, of true holiness. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in his life. Meaning this, there are still, by them, still remnants of the, of the corruption. Basically, the point is this. Sanctification is continuous, and you will never reach perfection in this life. That's the, that's the, the biblical teaching of sanctification. 
dominion, they say, of sin is destroyed. The Bible says in, in Romans 6.14, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. It was Charles Finney who said that entire sanctification is possible through the power of, not the Holy Spirit, not the Word of God, but through your natural ability. I'm going to say that again. That was Charles Finney, a Methodist, who was a part of John Wesley's teaching. John Wesley started the Methodist church. Charles Finney was a Methodist. He said entire sanctification, Christian perfectionism, is possible through natural ability. Natural ability. Did you ever just said natural ability? Charles Finney, John Wesley, they're all in the same camp. Natural ability, meaning this. That they possess more power than they really had. Or at least they thought they did. And they are ascribing less glory to God because they don't need him. Why? Because they have the natural ability to do it without him. The holiness movement began to teach stages or states, stages or, or states of sanctification. There's going to be a third stage. So one is regeneration. Two is seeking sanctification. Three is, I just, three is baptism in the Holy Spirit. And each of these is a stage that you should aspire to. I can't, I just jumped way ahead of myself. But they believed, these holiness people, they believed in the moral aspects of the law. They believed that they should abstain from drinking alcohol. They, they believed that they should abstain from gambling. No entertainment. No makeup, women. No jewelry. No skin showing. And when we get to this second work of grace, they say that's not good enough. We need a third work. And they begin to call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John Wesley, again, was the founder of the Methodist Church, and they continued in the holiness movement into the 19th century. While on his deathbed, John Wesley admitted he never attained Christian perfectionism, although all of his life he vigorously sought after it. Can you imagine teaching, being the founder of something that you're never going to attain and telling everyone that they can attain it? This movement spread all throughout England and eventually all throughout the world. But this heresy began to spread slowly now. Now, here's where it gets really difficult for me. It began to spread slowly. As a matter of fact, as we continue through this, we're going to see a bunch of little pockets of heretical fires that begin to spark up. So I want you to notice real quick that there is no real history. There's only developing heresy. You, as a Reformed Baptist, you have a good history. You can trace it all the way back to the apostles and prophets. They, of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, have a shady history. As a matter of fact, it is no history. It's just heresy. The same gospel that we preach today can be traced all the way back to the first, second, third, all the way up to the 16th century Reformation, to the great awakening of the 17th century, 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century. That's your heritage. That's your lineage. The gospel, salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus, glory of God alone, sola scriptura, the five points. We have a rich history. You have a rich history. When we look at this movement, we don't see that. Instead, 
we see heretics that if they were alive during the time of the Reformation and even before that, they would be burned at the stake. So keep this in mind as we continue to look at the rest of this history. Within the 19th and 20th century, we see a host of heretical fires rising up. Now, here we go. Edward Irving, pastor of Regent Square Scottish Church in London, 1830, is believed that there was a small outbreak of people who supposedly spoke in tongues and began to prophesy. Edward Irving. 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 The leader of this movement, though, was a woman who during that service began to so-called speak in tongues. Her name is Mary Margaret MacDonald. She claimed to have visions of Jesus and said that the Spirit of God told her that God was going to restore the apostolic gifts back to the church. You're going to hear that claim over and over and over again. God is going to bring back the apostolic gifts to the church over and over again. What are they saying when they say that? God is going to rebuild the foundation. The first one wasn't good enough. And there's going to be a continuous undervaluing of the first Pentecost that we feel like we have to do it over and over again rather than receive the benefits from Pentecost today. Why would we do that? Do you not realize that the cross, the resurrection and Pentecost are all connected as one? But do we try to recreate the cross? Are you going to be resurrected again? Or will you be resurrected in place of Christ? Will you try to recreate the cross? Then why do we keep doing this with Pentecost? They are all a part of salvific history. They're not separate events. They're one. Please keep that in mind. So, Irving, when this Mary Margaret McDonald, when she began to speak in tongues... He accepted what she was doing and began to exhort his congregation to seek the Holy Spirit, expecting signs and wonders, the same signs and wonders of the book of Acts. And he expected them to happen in his church. What happened? Because he was a part of the Presbyterian church, one of the great things that they've done, they removed him. They removed him from his position and he started a new church called the Catholic Apostolic Church. He was a false prophet and made a bunch of different false prophecies. He claimed that God would heal all those who put their faith in him while three of his four children died of diseases. There was also another movement that came out of the Quaker community and they were called the Shakers. The Quaking Shakers. They obviously believed in the gifts that were spoken of in the book of Acts. They became known again as the Shakers. They would shake, they would shake, jump, roll on the floor Believing that it would remove all of their sinful tendencies. So the next time you feel sinful, just start rolling on the floor and see how that works for you. There was a woman that led this movement. Her name was Mother Anne. She, be, she claimed to be the female nature of God and the second coming of Christ. She also claimed that she could speak in 72 different tongues. 72 different languages. She even wrote hymns in tongues that no one knew how to sing. Out of this came, again, a new buzzword being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it was coined by a man by the name of Benjamin Irwin. Everyone wanted this baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
he began to teach that there was a greater experience, greater than the initial regeneration, greater than even sanctification, that you should seek to be baptized in the Holy Spirit so that you could receive the gifts of the book of Acts. This baptism of the Holy Spirit also led to the baptism of dynamite. This is from, uh, what's his name? Benjamin Irwin. He taught a baptism of dynamite. Listen, he taught a baptism of Lydite. He taught a baptism of Iodite and a whole bunch of other different baptisms. He was saying you could keep going to different levels and receive greater gifts. Can you imagine being baptized in dynamite? How do you survive that? This pastor, Benjamin Irwin, eventually stepped down because of moral failure. Moral failure, he stepped down. Frank Sanford, who lived in Maine, established a church called Shiloh, the Shiloh Community Church. He began to teach heresy of the past that God would bring back the apostolic gifts, rebuild the foundation. He called himself Elijah. He claimed to be the reincarnation of Elijah. He claimed that anyone who rejected his baptism would go to hell. He eventually spent 10 years in prison for manslaughter. And he had a great impact on the formation of the Pentecostal movement. Another heretic who the Pentecostal church claims as a founder of their movement. Another man was by the name of John Dowie. He started Zion City in North Chicago. He was called the father of the healing revivalism in America. He taught that healing is always promised to those who trust in Christ. He said, he said that doctors are of the devil and he set out to establish a holy city called Zion City. And he actually did so. It's a 10 square mile city, but no doctors are allowed there. He had a, a, uh, a post office. He had a general store, a grocery store, all sorts of things in this little city, but no doctors are allowed. He was also a racist. He was a universalist and believed that he was also Elijah. He said that all who came to be healed by him would be healed. And all who came to be healed by him were not healed. His very own daughter died when he would not allow her to have medicine to be brought to her when she was burned in an accident. And she eventually died because she did not have medicine. Many of the founders of the Pentecostal of Pentecostalism came out of Zion City and they followed the teachings of John Doe. And out of that Zion City came the assemblies of God. I'll say that again. Out of Zion City came the assembly of God. Cornerstone Church. Anyways, for all this, from all this came the prominence of the gift that everyone wanted but so sadly could not get, but pretended that they had, and that is the gift of speaking in tongues. This experience that everyone sought after <clears throat> was seen most evidently and most heretically in two specific men that Isaiah is going to talk more about tomorrow or next week. These two men are said to have the biggest impact on Pentecostal charismatic movement. Number one, Charles Parham. He came out of the Methodist Church. Who started the Methodist Church? John Wesley started the Methodist Church and traveled to every single church that I just mentioned. He traveled to Shiloh. He traveled to Zion City. 
he traveled to the Quakers or the Shakers, and he, he began to gather his theology from each of these different heresies, from the Quakers. He gathered the, the theology of annihilism, meaning that when you die, you don't go to hell, you just cease to exist. He went to Zion City, and with Dowie, he captured the, the doctrine of perfect health. He taught that Adam and Eve were of a different race. This man, whether you know this or not, and say this to anybody who is a part of this movement and who claims Charles Parham as one of their founders or one of their fathers, he was also associated with the KKK and believed that interracial marriage is what caused the flood and that people of color, mostly all of us in here, could never be saved. In 1901, he established a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas and began to teach that signs of the book of Acts would come again. What is that? Rebuild the foundation. He taught that speaking in tongues would be a sign that you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And during one of his services, there was a woman by the name of Agnes Osmond who supposedly spoke in tongues. And here's what she said. Usa, usa. Yusa rela shema kala mala kuna leula shej nalan. Ligli logli, lazily logli, ini mini, mo. She forgot mining. Sara el mi, sara mi. They said, this means Jesus is here. Jesus is ready to hear God is love. It was investigated and found out from a linguistic, someone who knows languages, that what you just said is nothing. And it means nothing. They believed that they were receiving gifts from the book of Acts. They actually were going to other countries thinking that they could speak in tongues, speaking to these different peoples of different languages, speaking in tongues. And the people were looking at them and saying, we don't know what you're saying. You're not speaking our language. And they would come back and say it didn't work. This was not the beginning, but it is the most recognizable moment when the Pentecostal movement began. Topeka, Kansas, 1901, Charles Parham. Charles Parham was also eventually arrested for sodomy. If you don't know what sodomy, it is, sodomy is, it is sexual relations with the same sex, homosexuality. 1903, Charles Parham moved to Houston. Isaiah can correct me on this, Texas. And I believe it's in Texas that he meets another man by the name of William Seymour. I heard another person say Chicago, but Texas is what I heard more uh, frequently. William Seymour brought this heresy from Charles Parham to California. And he started this little church, this little prayer group in a little, a little uh, secluded place in Los Angeles called Azusa Street. Many people who are from California call this Azusa Street the birthplace of Pentecostalism as well. How many of you have ever heard of the Azusa Street Revival? Well, let me tell you about it. <laughs> they began to have meetings in 1906 and many of these people would come from all over and strange unorderly things would happen that lasted for some three years there was jumping there was trances there was hysteria they were making animal noises and all kinds of strange things so out of control that the police would have to come and calm down the wildness people would fall apparently under the power of God like soldiers in a battle Parham came to investigate what was going on and condemned it as being not from God, as if he was doing any better. It's like the devil coming to evaluate the devil and saying it's nothing but the devil. 
This church, Azusa Street, was eventually closed down. It foreclosed, but it also closed down because there were many immoral acts that were taking place on Azusa Street. So for those who say Azusa Street, you better find out about Azusa Street. There was nothing holy going on there. There was nothing spectacular going on there. There were cult-like activities and immoral activities happening at Azusa Street. And of course people are going to be drawn to that because it, it feeds the flesh. Out of this came, again, the Assemblies of God, the Foursquare Church, the Church of God in Christ, and a host of other denominations. People were coming out of this church and taking this heresy all across the world. And it's almost out of control from there. It's almost impossible to, to, to try to contain this wildfire that spreads of heresy. Out of Azusa Street came a man by the name of William Durham, who was a heretic. 1909, William Durham met a woman by the name of Amy Simple McPherson. You ever heard of her? Durham would speak in tongues and Amy Simple McPherson would interpret his words. They would publish interpretations together as if they were extra biblical revelations that had been given to them or they were adding to the Bible. What does the book of Revelation say about that? You add or take away a curse be on you. Oh, and a curse was. She also wrote books like a book of my personal experiences, divine healing, and the second coming of Christ. Amy Simple McPherson, she began the Foursquare Church. Specifically, Amy Simple McPherson is the founder of the Foursquare Church, which unfortunately this church used to be a part of, and now we condemn. <clears throat> out of that holiness movement, or out of that movement came the oneness movement, oneness Pentecostal. They deny the Trinity out of Azusa Street came the oneness Pentecostal movement that denies the Trinity. They would be burned at the stake. Amy Simple McPherson, you want to know what happened to her? She faked her own kidnapping so that she could have an adulterous affair with the man that she loved. She had three husbands. The third left his wife and children to marry Amy Simple McPherson, the founder of the Foursquare Church. That marriage was short. She had a nervous breakdown and her husband filed for a divorce. In 1944, she died of an overdose of sleeping pills. But before she died, she passed on her so-called anointing to a woman by the name of Catherine Kuhlman. You know who Catherine Kuhlman is? Good. Let me tell you about her. Catherine Kuhlman married a man who divorced his wife so that he could marry her. Guess God told him to do that. Kuhlman then divorced him. Guess God told her to do that. She met with the Pope and believed that they had one spirit and believed that Catholicism was no different than Christianity. She claimed to receive revelation from God. She claimed that she had the gift to heal. She claimed to speak in tongues. She claimed to have all the apostolic gifts of the book of Acts. She apparently passed on her anointing to a man from the Middle East. You know his name. Benny Hinn. Need I say more? There is so much more. Could I go on and on? Yes, I could. Should I? Why not? Let's do one more. Smith Wigglesworth. How many of you have heard of him? Oh, Wiggly. <clears throat> Prophesied about the return of the apostolic gifts and a revival before the end of the 21st century. This man was a supposed healer. No healings were ever proved. No healings were ever documented. It was said that he would punch cancer patients in the chest until they died. And then he would raise them back to life and they would be cancer free. Never proven. 
all of these documented healings were written down by one supposed witness who copied down every single one of them. His name was Lester Summerall. Ever heard of him? He was the organizer of the Feed the Hungry program in which he focused on getting food to the hungry. Later, he was exposed that he was using the money to feed his own lust and his own hunger rather than to feed the hungry. He also prophesied that he would see the, the return of Christ Jesus before the end of 1999. It never happened because he died. But before he died, and he died a false prophet, before he died, he supposedly passed on his greedy anointing to a man by the name of Rod Parsley. Who apparently passed it on to a number of people like the pastor of the church that we used to attend, Oasis Christian Center. I knew you would enjoy that. Who passed it on to his son. And the heresy continues today. Should I go in different directions? Oh, I could take you in a million different directions. I could take you to the direction of Kenneth Hagin, senior and junior. I could take you to the direction of Kenneth Copeland. I could take you to the direction of what's that guy's name in in <clears throat> Compton or whatever it's called. Frederick Price. They are all connected to the same heresy. It's just different fires that are sparking up. But it's all. Remember last week when I played for you that clip of speaking in tongues? Do you know who that was? That was Kenneth Hagin. Nara, nine. Remember say nine, rhyme, mine. Sha Ra Ma. Remember that? Kenneth Hagen, senior, heretic, full of heresy. Who was putting all these people on, on television? Paul Crouch, senior, a man who was exposed for being a homosexual. A man who has been exposed for for taking money and using it for himself. Do, do we need for, for you to go to the 2020 expose of any end? The person who believes that the Trinity is a nanity, that there's nine gods instead of three. Where do they find their lineage? Where is their history? It's filled with occultism. It's filled with not history, but heresy. You have people who are going to churches that support these people. What about Creflo Dollar? Same line. What about Joel Osteen? Same line. What about Robert Morris? Same line. There's too many fires for me to try to spray the water at and say, that's one, that's, it's all over. What are you? You're a light shining in the darkness. Out of the half a billion Pentecostals and Charismatics, you are a light shining in the darkness. I hear reports Almost weekly of those of you who are working with co-workers who are in that craziness and say to them things that they've never heard before. Why? Because they've been raised in a Pentecostal charismatic culture. And we pray to God that he will continue to keep a flame burning for reformed theology and for truth and that you will be one of the keepers of that flame. So what do we take from all of this? What happened in the book of Acts was used uniquely in the book of Acts by God for that specific time. The foundation does not be, need to be rebuilt again. The apostolic gifts have ceased today and we benefit from them today. Heresy begins when we have an unbiblical view of God and unbiblical view of ourselves. The heretical fires will continue to burn until the Lord returns. And they are used by God to separate the sheep from the goats. Are there people saved in these movements? Yes, there are.
And we must pray that they continue to read their word and they are exposed to people like you so that you can share with them the gospel truth, your history, and their heresy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I pray that it was edifying. I pray that it was informative. And I pray, God, that you would use the people here to take this gospel message to their family, friends, and loved ones. If they won't come to a service, 